1: Welcome to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Tanko's message today is entitled, The Golden Altar Before the Throne. That's the golden altar before the throne, and we'll bring you the first portion of that broadcast today. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, you can call us at any time, 24-7. Here's the phone number, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Here now is Pastor Michael Tenko with The Golden Altar Before the Storm.
2: Ann Landers once spoke this word of wisdom as the single most important piece of advice she has ever come up with in life. She said, if I were asked to give what I consider the single most useful bit of advice for all humanity, it would be this. Expect trouble as an inevitable part of life, and when it comes, hold your head high, look it squarely in the eye, and say... I will be bigger than you. You cannot defeat me. Well, that's pretty good advice. But let's face it. We all have trouble in life. How many of you qualify in that equation? Okay, a few of you. The rest of you are beyond me. We all have trouble in life. Isn't that a, a universal fundamental fact of our humanity? But what separates the Christian who will overcome in the end from the person who says they're a Christian who will never overcome is really the outcome of a simple thing called faith. I mean, faith is the mustard seed. If planted in your life, it bears fruit into eternal life. And faith does not have to be large. It just has to be there and used to grow and become what God wants for you to have in your life. In our world today, there's a faith deficit in the Christian church. You know, people want all the benefits of religion without the deep commitment that comes when you fall on your knees, you give yourself to God. You say, Lord, take the little faith I have, the little faith I have, and make my life matter as a living sacrifice for you. I mean, people don't think that way in the Christian church today. People attend church today because they're enamored with the promise of what the church can do for them rather than what they can do for Jesus Christ who died for them. You know, they fail the test of faith by refusing to have a commitment and a surrender that really overcomes sin. They want religion on their terms, not God's terms. You know, people choose religion very often because of what they can simply get out of the church and then move on. Instead of giving until there is nothing left, until they have the life that is poured out as the sweet aroma of grace sowed in the ground into eternal life. You know, there are people today who simply want to be in the church for their own ends. But it is, But let me ask this question. Isn't it more important in the final judgment day to be chosen by God rather than to determine what you want out of religion? Isn't it more important to have Him turn to you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I recognize the selfless life in the life that was poured out for me. Ann Landers is right. Trouble comes as an inevitable part of life. And you will either defeat the troubles of your life or they will defeat you. In the Old Testament, there's an amazing verse that deserves our notice this morning. It tells of a hero. It tells of an ancient hero, an extraterrestrial hero who was the guide and guardian of God's ancient people. It's found in Isaiah 63.9. To overcome trouble, we must interface with this ancient hero. Isaiah 63.9, In all of their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and His pity, He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. When they suffered, He suffered too. When they needed a Savior, He saved them. When the scowls of their enemies weighed heavy on their hearts and other nations said they were too little to be important, He had love and pity for them. When they were lost like sheep that go astray, He redeemed them seeking that one lost sheep of infinite importance to Him. When they fell into sin, little sin or big sin, when they fell because of weakness or rebellion, He lifted them up as only a shepherd lifts a little lamb. And when they were too tired to walk and when they were lame and when they had no energy to pick themselves up, He, this ancient hero, the angel of God's presence, He carried them all the days of old. So I ask the question, who is this angel that redeemed Israel from all its troubles in ancient times? Isaiah says He is the Redeemer. In Isaiah 44, 6, He identifies this Redeemer a little more clearly. Turn with me to Isaiah 44, verse 6. The Bible says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. Now it's talking about God the Father there. And His Redeemer. Now we know who He is, don't we? And His Redeemer. But look what it calls Him, the Lord of hosts. You see, not only is the King of Israel the Lord, and that word is Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on how you read the ancient text, it's the divine name for the God of Mount Sinai. The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, who is the King of Israel, He has a Redeemer And He has the same name. He is the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah of hosts. And then instead of saying we, it says I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. They speak as one because they are one. The Lord who is the King of Israel's God the Father and His Redeemer in the context is the Lord of hosts. Together they say as one, I am the first and the last and there is no God besides me. The angel of God's presence in Isaiah 63, 9, who redeems them all the days of old is the Redeemer who is Himself God. You know, there's a church out there, well-meaning, I'm not here to criticize it, well-meaning church that believes that Jesus is the angel of the Lord but denies that He is the Lord, denies that He is the second person, the triune Godhead. Isaiah 44, 6 will not allow that conclusion. The Redeemer bears the same divine name as the King of Israel. He too is the Lord. He is the first and the last. So in the book of Revelation, Jesus is the first and the last, and His Father is the first and the last two. They are both the Alpha and the Omega, the One who was, the One who is, and the One who is to come. You know, there are times in the book of Revelation when Jesus is clearly perceived as a human being. He has eyes of fire, hair that is white, feet that look like bronze, and he even rides a horse. He's an equestrian, two places in Revelation six and Revelation nineteen. Christ is fully human in the Book of Revelation. But there are times in the Book of Revelation when he is clearly God too. He is the word of God in Revelation nineteen thirteen. He holds the keys of death in the grave in Revelation one eighteen. He has a right to the throne of God in Revelation three twenty one and Revelation twenty two verse one. And even though he is fully human and fully God, let's move on. There is another piece of his identity we see in the book of Revelation. He, even though he is the second person of the holy triune God, he is the second person of the Trinity. He is also something else that many Bible students miss. He is that ancient being, that extraterrestrial force that guided Israel in its past. He is the angel of the Lord. In Isaiah 63.9, the angel of God's presence is the one who carried them all the days of old. In John 1.10, it says He was in the world. The world was made through Him. and The world didn't know Him. He came to His own people. In other words, at some point in the past, He was assigned to the nation of Israel. And then in John 1.11, His own people received Him not. That ancient being who was afflicted in all of their afflictions is Jesus. That means the angel of the Lord is the good shepherd. And He doesn't stop doing the same thing in the book of Revelation in the New Testament era just because He became a human being. Christ is still the guardian protector of God's people. He is that part of the eternal triune God that is the messenger that comes from God that is God. He is the angel of the Lord. Psalms 34 verse 7 describes Jesus in this way. How many times have we read this verse where we think He's talking about an angel? No, He's talking about the angel of the Lord. Who is the Lord? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. I mean, if you fear the angel of the Lord, He's going to encamp around you. Now, who is that? That's Jesus Christ who made His encampment in the human race. John says, He tabernacled among us and became flesh. The angel of the Lord. Friend, Jesus is not any less a person of power today than what He was in the Old Testament times. Christ is the mighty angel of God's presence that destroyed the mighty Assyrian army as it threatened to destroy His people. He is the mighty presence of the Lord that pushed back the forces of evil and kept the nations of the world from wiping out a people that would bring us the Savior in human form. He carried God's people all the days of old. He redeemed them. And you know what? He does the same thing today. The one who worked then works today. He redeems you today. He saves you today. He is the way, the truth, and the life for you today. You know, the seven trumpets in the book of Revelation begin with Jesus as a structural necessity. Now, what do I mean by that? In fact, all the major sections of the book of Revelation begin with seven, and they have Jesus at the very beginning of them. Christ introduces the seven. Let me illustrate. Jesus' vision of Revelation 1, the the focus of it that introduces what we call the seven churches. We find Jesus is the Lamb in Revelation 5 and the glorious rider in white in Revelation 6-2 that introduces the seven seals. Just before the seven plagues, Jesus is sitting on a cloud in Revelation 14-14 and a group appear in Revelation 15-2 and 3 who sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. So the seven trumpets are no exception to this fact that Christ appears at the beginning of all the sevens in the book of Revelation. So what do we have here? In the context, Jesus is the angel in the seven trumpets who stands at the golden altar before God because God does not break the symmetry of putting Jesus at the beginning of everything that begins with the seven. Christ is the golden truth that stands at the golden altar that moves from the altar in the outer court to the golden altar before God. He transitions from the earth to heaven. He moves from the cross to the presence of God. And the angel of God's presence appears at the golden altar before God because Jesus has character that is gold refined by fire and that is what we need in these last days. Christ has what the church of Laodicea needs. Gold refined by fire. Revelation 8.1 When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Now that doesn't mean here that the seven trumpets follow immediately after the seven seals. The Greek word chi, which is the word for and, does not necessarily mean and in terms of sequence. This happened right after that. In the book of Revelation, John will often see something that is not exactly chronological after that which he has just seen. He uses the word and to introduce a new series of thoughts that will flow parallel to the previous series of thinking. So the seven trumpets are really a repetition of the history of the seven seals. A repetition of the history of the seven churches expressed in a new way. The churches, the seals, and the trumpets, we will discover, are parallel accounts of history. Timeline prophecies that move from the apostolic era to the end of the age. Look at Revelation 8, verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. Now you will find in the seven trumpets, there is a movement from this altar to the golden altar that we are going to read about. And as we get to the sixth trumpet, voices come from the golden altar before God. And then we have the picture of the book of Daniel being unsealed at the time of the end. We have a picture of a judgment scene in heaven, a great pre-advent judgment. And the very transition that occurs next is it moves to the most holy place in Revelation eleven nineteen, 19, where it says, then God's temple in heaven was opened. So there's a movement from the outer court, the altar in the outer court, into the holy place at the very beginning of the trumpets. And then from the sixth to seventh trumpet, there's a transition from the holy place to the most holy place in the judgment hour of human history. That's essentially what's happening here. Now, some people might ask the question, why do we have seven trumpets in the context? It just so happens in Numbers 10, 9, and 10 that trumpets were used for very important reasons. At the first of the new moons, at the festivals of Israel, and other occasions, a trumpet was blown to alert God's people to gather in holy convocation. And so every new moon, there was a trumpet blast. In the ancient festival calendar of Israel, there were seven months from Passover to the final feast of the year, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, five days before the Feast of Tabernacles was the great judgment fast called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It represents the pre-Advent judgment, just before Jesus returns. So at the first of every month, a trumpet was blown as we move from Passover month to the Day of Atonement month and the Feast of Tabernacles month, which celebrates the second coming of Jesus in type and form here. So essentially, that's what we have in the seven trumpets. Let's look at the verses again and read. Another angel came and stood at the altar. You'll notice in the context, it doesn't say any other thing other than altar. And when it says that, it means the bronze altar in the outer court. Just before you enter the sanctuary where you have the golden altar of incense... So another angel came and stood at the altar, meaning the bronze altar, with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to mingle with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar before the throne. In other words, he is finding his place in the outer court of the sanctuary to transition into the inner sanctuary to pray for God's people. And look at verse 4. And the smoke of the incense rose with the prayers of the saints from the hand of the angel before God. Now this angel is Jesus Christ, who is the mighty angel of the Lord, who is the Lord. The Redeemer of Israel, the second person of the triune Godhead, barely part of the Trinity. He is the ancient hero that carried Israel and saved them. And here we see Him again, Jesus, in this form in the book of Revelation. In the seven trumpets, He takes His place with a prayer censer at the altar that is for the golden altar before God. The first altar here stands as the bronze altar in the outer court. The altar is the place where Jesus prayed for you, where He took much incense. He mixed His prayers with your need on His knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, which means the oil press, where the Holy Spirit oil was pressed out of Him. And on the cross where the blood flowed and He died for us. The altar is the place where He laid His life down freely. And in just a few hours of infinite agony, no one can measure it, infinite agony because God, angel, and man were interfacing with an infinite agony for the human race. He died. The altar represents the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross of Calvary where Jesus prayed for you with blood and tears and He died for you with a broken heart too heavy to measure. The Bible says Jesus was given much incense at the altar. And you may not know it in life, friend, but Jesus relived your life. You may not realize it, but He relived your life in His head. And He experienced your personal hell, the outcome of rebellion. If you don't ever come back to Him, He experienced that for you on the cross of Calvary so you would never have to face it and so that you can have a new life in Him and never know the alternate timeline that is the the timeline of rebellion without God. In Revelation 8-4, Jesus is very clear that the incense represents the prayers of the saints. At the bronze altar of sacrifice, Jesus said, If it be possible, let this cup pass from Me, but not My will, but Thy will be done. He prayed that prayer. I don't want to do what Adam did. I don't want my way. I want your way, God. And your way means my end. It means I have no future. Father, I'm struggling with that. I surrender to you. He prayed for us and he gave his will to God. The bronze altar, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And what did God do? Did he say no to that question? As Christ was hanging on the cross of Calvary. He said, Father, forgive them. Did he said, "I'll wait to do that when I feel like it later on? Now let's let some good, cold, warm, whatever kind of reason you have come to this question. Did God do that, or didn't He? Now I ask it even this way: Who was Jesus? Was Christ only Christ, the Messiah, or was He not God in human form? Who was praying that prayer at the cross of Calvary? It was God in Christ who was praying that prayer. When you pray a prayer to forgive your enemies, you have forgiven them in your heart. Am I not right? Yes or no? All right. if Jesus is God, and Christ was praying that prayer at the cross of Calvary, was not God in Christ forgiving us our sins? Yes or no? You cannot escape the simple, brilliant truth of the New Testament. Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, we should forgive each other as God in Christ forgave us. Colossians 2.13, that in Christ, God forgave us all our trespasses, nailing down to the cross. Final, in-time judgment occurs in Jesus for us. Our great substitute, and it is an expression of the love of God poured out in a point in time. That means Jesus, friends, is the good news of God's forgiveness at the cross. There's no better news about God than what you see in the God-man saying, Father, forgive them. Bronze in the sanctuary system was in the outer court. It never found its way into the sanctuary. And because of this, it represents the earth. It's symbolic of the world we live in. God belongs to the holy place and the most holy place. His physical presence is manifested in that second apartment, the most holy place, which was a perfect cube. Now, the New Jerusalem City in the book of Revelation... Is a perfect cube. It means that our future home will be the most holy place. But the holy place represents the visible universe. On the menorah stick, there were seven lights that burned. It represents the visible universe you can see at night when the veil of the daylight sky is kind of parted and you can see the flashing, twinkling stars in the sky. It represents the universe that's out there that has not fallen. God belongs to the holy place and the most holy place of the inner sanctuary. It represents heaven. Gold belongs to God the earth and mars have you ever watched some of these satellite images coming back from this curiosity explorer doesn't the surface of mars look like bronze yes or no it does if you look at the pictures if you take a picture of outer space it even looks that way as you're approaching the planet in the past mars had water on it they say they can see the rivers and gullies and this kind of thing but today when you look at it it looks like a bronze ball kinda hung out there of sorts now it is our twin planet Earth and Mars are very similar. In fact, they found meteorites in Antarctica that have come from, recently, from the asteroid belt, that have come from Mars. They can tell by looking at those deposits and comparing their chemistry, and they're Mars-based. It's iron in the ground that makes it look like bronze, the red planet. Our world has iron, too. If you ever go to some places, some desert places, you'll, you'll see that they're really brilliant red, and it would match the, the look of Mars the fact is our world is just covered with trees and grass and kind of obscures the fact friend jesus died on the earth that is the bronze altar the sacrifice the bronze sea was in the outer court too from outer space you can see a water world here our earth is a water world it's like a bronze sea and this is the place where jesus came the outer court so Jesus took the golden censer and He prayed for His people right here on the earth where the bronze altar is found. Right here where the sea is at. In Exodus 20, 24, it says, An altar of earth you shall make for Me. You shall never make for Me in any other kind of altar. It is to be something that shows that I come down to where you're at. No altar with steps on it. No, an altar of earth. In Revelation 1, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, speaking of Jesus. Now, why would Jesus' feet be like burnished bronze? Friends, because Jesus died on the bronze altar, which is the cross of Calvary, and His feet are like burnished bronze with fire, because ever after, the fire of the altar has found its way to Him. The fire of the altar that should have burned you up with your sin got Him instead as your great substitute. In the Old Testament... When the plague of serpents struck Israel in the desert, God sent Aaron out with a censer full of incense to pray for the people. He moved throughout the camp and he prayed for them. And they were there instructed to look upon that bronze serpent that was created from a fiery melt of sorts. And they were to look upon a bronze serpent on a wooden pole. And whoever looked at that bronze serpent representing sin on a pole, that person lived. Whoever didn't want to, they didn't. Now, you know, it's funny how people work. There's always a skeptic in every age. And I imagine there are people there that were too intellectual to look at that bronze pole. Guess what happened to them? They died. They just died. They probably asked the question, why? You know? Why do I need to look at that thing? I'll get better. And they didn't. God has designed that by looking at sin on a wooden pole, Dying for you, that is your way out of sin. It's your way out of death. That's your way into the future. John 3.14, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus that night. As this wise, well, he wasn't that wise actually. He thought he was wise. As this teacher had to learn a thing or two from one who knew. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now the whoever means Anyone who looks at the serpent lives. God is not pushing people away. He's opening the door. A simple exercise of faith in the One who has sinned for you on a tree. You live if you look. And then this famous verse we know so well, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever, the King James says, that whosoever, believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Friend, God is not trying to just save the elect. He's trying to save the whosoever of John three sixteen that looks at Jesus on the cross of Calvary.
1: Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed today's broadcast, remember that there are many more of these sermons available for you at reachingyourheart.com. If you're a regular listener to this broadcast or if you've just tuned in for the first time, and have been inspired by this sermon, and you'd like to partner with us to help keep these radio broadcasts on the air, you can simply call us at 1-888-244-HOPE. That's 888 244 hope day or night, 24-7. One of our team is available to assist you right now. We believe God is moving across the globe, touching lives and reaching hearts, and you are helping make this a reality with your gift of any amount spiritualism in a variety of forms is making its way through the Western world the afterlife the spirit world and spirit mediums can be found in movies best-selling books and popular TV programs these themes are making their way into our children's entertainment even and we have this free book to help you understand things a little bit better entitled dark tunnels or bright lights this book candidly reveals biblical truth about this subject and pulls the curtain aside to reveal why there is so much interest in this topic. The book reveals the deceptions of spiritualism based on biblical teachings so that you can confidently discern truth from error as the topic continues to gain momentum across all levels of society. Now, this book is absolutely free. You can simply call us at 1-888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-HOPE, day or night, 24-7. Thanks for tuning in, and we pray that God is reaching your heart and growing you up in Christ through these messages.
0: Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells.